Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is June the 9th, and our passage for today is the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, Chapter 1. Before we get into Chapter 1 itself, and really what I'm going to do is encourage you to read as much of the book of the Song of Solomon as possible. I've just put down Chapter 1 in hopes that you will read the entire book, especially Chapter 2 and a couple of verses I'm going to point out to you, and also in Chapter 5 because there are some passages I want to bring to your attention. But before we do that, I want to talk about the Song of Solomon and how we should interpret it. Many times in the West, we interpret everything to the degree as we should, the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament, but sometimes we go beyond the way it should be interpreted, and we miss the great richness of what the original meaning of the book was. In other words, we so many times follow the words of Spurgeon that has been quoted from him over and over again, is that we take a text, any text, and this is primarily concerning the Old Testament, and make a big line to Jesus. In other words, as quickly as we can get to Jesus, we do. And I understand that. And and please, those of you who are followers of Spurgeon, you don't know me. You really don't know what I've read and what I've not read. But let me just say to you, I know Spurgeon. I was mentored by the man who Spurgeon was, the man he studied probably more than any other man in history, any other preacher. W.A. Criswell had a bust of Charles Spurgeon on his desk, on his credenza. I heard a lot about Spurgeon through Criswell. He encouraged me to read Spurgeon. So I have not read every commentary, but I have read much of New Park Street, of Metropolitan Tabernacle. I've read lectures to my students over and over again that I'd encourage any pastor to read, especially the one chapter about fainting fits. I've read the downgrade controversy. I've read of his peers, Alexander McLaren and others. Much of that I did during the days of the conservative resurgence of Southern Baptist because Uh, There were so many likenesses to what happened in the British Baptist Union and the separation that took place there and the downgrade controversy and the hurt and the tear and the injury that came from that. But I have read also uh, some of the great biographies of Spurgeon as well as Moody, Finney, others. And I want to recommend some of those to you. First of all, I think every pastor and leader ought to read Lectures to My Students by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who I believe he, along with Alexander McLaren, were the two great orators of the 1800s. But if you've never read the Banner of Truth Trust printing of two volumes of Spurgeon's autobiography. The first volume, volume one, is the early years, and the second volume is called The Full Harvest. I have read those two, I don't know how many times through. 
Because they are rich, absolutely rich. If, if you want to know a different side of Spurgeon and some of these other men, I would encourage you to read Richard Ellsworth Day's books. They are written like allegories, like Pilgrim's Progress or something like that. It's absolutely fascinating to read. God really changed my life through Bush Glow. That's the name of the book Ellsworth Day wrote on D.L. Moody's life. Under the Shadow of the Broad Brim is the name of the book, Under the Shadow of the Broad Brim, The Life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Another one that is rarely talked about is uh, John Jasper and Rhapsody in Black is the name of it. He was a Negro preacher that made a huge impact uh, along the eastern seaboard, and so you just need to read about that. But he wrote of uh, Finney, and what he and his wife would do is they would research these great men of God. Uh, Ellsworth Day was born in in the mid-1880s, died in 1965. What they would do is they would research their subjects together, he and his wife, and then they would go to California and to their retreat center, and they would write these books. Absolutely fascinating. I've read Bush Glow, I don't know how many times, and I have read and reread Charles Spurgeon's biography about him called Under the Shadow of the Broad Room. really gives you another insight. And so the reason I'm saying this is because of Spurgeon's famous line that's attributed to him, take a text, any text, especially related to the Old Testament, make a beeline to Jesus. That is good advice, but it's not the best advice. And the reason is we need to take the Bible in its historical context and interpret it as it is from a Jewish perspective, because that's the way God wrote it. And are there lights to be had and illuminations to be had because of the New Testament? Of course. Of course it is. We need to read the Old Testament line of the New Testament, of course. Sometimes we read into the Old Testament things that were just not there, and they may be great allegorical points. They may be great analogous points, but they are not the primary meaning. For instance, the book of Ruth. Now, we're getting to the Song of Solomon, but you just have to get this because otherwise you're going to miss what the Song of Solomon is all about, as many people do about the book of Ruth. The reason, just from a standpoint of categorization of where Ruth comes in the Law of the Prophets and the Writings, and uh, why the Septuagint writers put it where it did between uh, 1 Samuel and after Judges is because in its addendum to Judges, it, it introduces King David and introduces the line of the Judaic dynasty. Why? Because this is a story of God. And so Ruth and Boaz, yes, yes, that's a picture of the Goel and the kinsman redeemer and what Jesus did for us. Look, I'm not making that trite and not making that uh, less than what it is. That is a tremendous truth. But that's not the primary purpose of Ruth. The primary purpose of Ruth, historically and Judaically and biblically, is to introduce King David and to begin to build the lineage of King David in a way that would introduce Samuel, because Samuel would then offer to Israel after they had gone against his wishes, and God said, let them have a king. And, and you know the story of Saul and the Benjamite dynasty that only lasted a few years, and then the Judaic dynasty of David and the house of David, from which the Lord Jesus came, and the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is very important. You cannot miss the story of this Gentile woman and this Jewish man, an older man, a younger woman, how God brought them together providentially 
how David came into the picture. This is very, very important. And it's a great love story. And in, in that love story, there's so many truths that men and women need to hear about life and living life and about the culture and the age uh, in which they lived. And it's just a masterful story. And sometimes we miss that because we just center in on the concept of the Goel. And all of that's wonderful. But then when you say, well, what does this mean? We don't know because we've made a beeline to Jesus without going the route that Jesus told us to go. The same thing is true with the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is not primarily an allegory of Jesus and the church. If it's an allegory first of anything, it's of God's love for Israel and how that God cares for Israel, his people, and how God will care for them. Uh, You see, the church is a grafted-in entity of Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles are grafted in to the Abrahamic covenant and the spiritual promises of God. We're not Jews. We don't become Jews. And so God has this love affair with Israel. And after the bride of Christ, which is Jew and Gentile together, is taken out of them, whenever you think that is, God is going to, if if the book of Revelation is true at all and it has any historicity to it, and prophecy is nothing more than history written, in advance, then what's going to happen is there's going to be a day when the church is no longer going to be here because God is going to seal and sign up at one time simultaneously, instantaneously, all over the earth from the diaspora and those living in the Middle East, in Israel. He's going to seal from all 12 tribes, 144,000 Jews. Now, the tribe of Dan is left out, but that's it. But out of 144,000 They are going to become God's flaming evangelists and preachers and prophets and teachers during the days of the Great Tribulation, the Great Crushing, the Megalathlipsis. And so God has this love affair with Israel. So don't miss that. And sometimes because we're ignorant of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, we are ignorant of God's Word. This is why the New Testament doesn't make sense, and it loses its color and its richness because we fail to read the whole book. And you see, we we get caught up in that the Old Testament is law. The word Torah doesn't mean law. It means instruction. And when Jesus said he came not to destroy Torah, he literally said, I didn't come to destroy the instruction that God's given you. Why? Because it was never through sacrifices and circumcision, this, that, and the other, that a man was made right with God. It's always been by faith. It's always been by trust. Those sacrifices, the blood and bulls and goats and rams and lambs and all of those could never take away sin. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Read the book. But those things were offered as symbols uh, and expressions of faith, of trust that one day God would provide a full accounting and payment for sin. And that's what Jesus did. When he died on the cross, he said to Telestai, in Greek, it means the debt has been paid and it's paid in full. And so our sin penalty has been paid, and he gives us victory over sin. But as long as we're in this life, we're going to deal with it. And so all to say, all of that's true, and I love that, and I teach that all the time. But when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible, we need to let the book, the primary meaning of like the book of Ruth, which is another beautiful love story in the Song of Solomon, be what they are, beautiful love stories. And if they're anything, they are a picture of God that's right, of Yah and all He is, the triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a love relationship with Israel, His people, His primary people, Israel. 
And so the Song of Solomon is a beautiful love story between this woman, this unlikely woman. Some say the Shulamite, the consonants for Shulamite are the same as Salem or Shalom, that kind of consonant radicals that make up the root of the word. And so they say that this lady was from this woman that Solomon so loved was from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. It could be, but more than likely, Solomon, as you know, had enterprises everywhere, north, south, all over what we call that land in between, what is called Israel today, Lebanon, Syria, all the way down to Egypt, Jordan. Solomon ruled over all that area, all the way to the Euphrates. And so he was all up and down that Jezreel Valley in that area, and I believe that is where the Shulamite would have come from. He fell in love with her, and it was a love that was deep. He wooed her. She wooed him. They responded. He went after her and went after her, and finally she came. But they show us a picture of great love. Contrary to popular opinion, it's the kind of biblical love, uh, the love of a man for his wife, where adultery is not looked upon as something good. And you say, wait just a minute. Solomon had all these wives. His dad had all. Oh, I understand that. But the ideal is always what it is, a man and a woman. That's the way that God meant for it to be. And just because uh, people didn't always abide by that doesn't mean that that standard is taken away. And so they loved one another. They cared for one another. And, and so we cannot go through the whole book. But I do want to point out a couple of passages that I want you to underline in your Bible. It's not chapter 1 because, again, that was to get you reading and introduce you to the Song of Solomon so you could eventually read the whole book. I want to call your attention to chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16, because these are two of the passages that I call to attention many times when I am dealing with a couple that's struggling. The passage says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. It's talking about a relationship between a man and a woman, and uh, these little foxes or jackals, that's the word, would sneak in to the vineyards and would nibble on the grapes and the vines, and they would destroy them. Uh, the word for spoil, it's a, a word, yes, that has its own meaning, but the Hebrew idiom, it's an idiomatic phrase. An idiomatic phrase is a phrase that says something to that generation that might not say something to someone else and another generation. For instance, we talk about in the South, someone being startled, we talk about a deer in a headlight or a calf looking at a new gate. Those are idioms that are Appalachian and South and Southern. You sometimes have to explain the idiom. Well, that's what I'm doing right now because catch us the foxes. These little foxes would come in. They would sneak in and they would nibble on the grapes and doing so they would injure the vines. And so what he said was in the relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite woman, they are looking for the little things that's going to spoil the relationship. And if you've been married very long, you understand this. My wife and I were married in 1978. As of last week, that's 44 years. We dated for another four years before that. We've been together a long time, and I can tell you, it's the little things that make the difference over time. And it's the little arguments and the hurtful words and things that you say that you wish you hadn't have said that begin to whittle away at the relationship and the love of the espousals when you were first married, when you uh, had the best in mind. And, and as you get older and you live life and the disappointments come in each other and in life itself and, and our own frailties and weaknesses, there's a tendency to allow the little things to build up into major things. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, understood 
There's the little foxes that spoil the vines, the little decisions that we make. You see, no man gets up, for instance, uh, one day and says, you know, I think I'm going to flush my life down the toilet and I'm just going to go out and have sex with another woman. No, that rarely happens like that. As a matter of fact, I believe it never happens. It always starts with little decisions before that. I think the same thing is true in a woman's life. I think it's true when the foxes, the little uh, jackals start eating away, little decisions are made. Next thing you know, you're into a way of thinking thinking you don't need to be, you say things, you do things, this look, this gaze, and the next thing you know, you're in trouble. And your heart is stolen. And when someone comes in to me and says, you know, I don't love my wife, I don't love my husband anymore, I just say, who is it? Because you see, yes, you can fall in and out of love emotionally a thousand times in 40 to 50 years. Well, maybe not a thousand, but over time you fall in and out of love, emotion comes and goes. Love is much more than emotion and feeling. It's a commitment. And so when you're talking about marriage, you're talking about a commitment to each other. I can tell you when that kind of commitment leaves, it's usually a commitment that goes somewhere else because we're all committed. And so the writer here says these little foxes will spoil the vines. And the reason is, is because the grapes are tender. Uh, Relationships are difficult and uh, marriage is hard. And it's not about happiness. It's really for the child of God, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, for those who follow the true God. Marriage is about holiness. It's about raising up another generation, a godly seed. It's about passing on the faith that's been delivered to the saints and to us to pass on to the next generation. Uh, Remember, our number one ministry, men, is to our wives. Wives, remember, our number one loyalty is to our husband. And uh, no, I mean to God, of course, but then to each other. Then in verse 16, you have this wonderful phrase, my beloved is mine and I am his. This is put on rings, on amulets, on boards, on signs, on it, it's everywhere. I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. The word is dod. It's uh, the root word for the word David, as a matter of fact. It's, it's serving someone and caring for someone, someone that's precious to you. This is what a dod is. Sometimes it's used for the word uncle in Hebrew, or because that's usually somebody that's a daddy to somebody, a second daddy. But it's, it's someone who's precious. And this is what marriage is about. Men and women need to love other men and women, but there needs to only be one beloved. I mean, we need to be as kind and gentle and as gracious and loving to everybody we can. But there comes a time when we just have to understand that God's put us together with one man, one woman. In chapter 5, very quickly, verses 10 and 11, I wanted to just point you out a couple of things. Uh, this uh, Shulamite was talking about Solomon said, my beloved is white and ruddy. The word white is the word for bright. Evidently, Solomon had beautiful skin. Sometimes it's the word for plain. In other words, it's, it's something that's very plain and easy to see and pleasant. It's used for something that's white. In other words, white is in the sense of plainness. It's light. It's easy to look upon. It's clear. It's the word for having a clear voice and clear speech. So it's something he must have been a handsome man. Ruddy is the word for red. Same thing is said about his daddy. That is, he is light-complected in the sense of he's red. He's red-skinned. Uh, as a matter of fact, David was probably fair-skinned, um, ruddy, red hair. Uh, it's not the case here because Solomon had black hair that we'll see in just a moment. But he's probably talking about his skin color. Uh, he's very clear, but he's reddish. 
He evidently was very handsome to look at. And it said his head is like the finest gold. That doesn't mean he had golden hair because it says his locks are wavy and black as a raven. That means his head was as precious as gold. It was absolutely spectacular. And uh, he had long raven black hair. Must have been uh, somewhat red or fair-skinned. That may be what, in context, this is white and, and red like like his dad, only have black hair. And uh, it's incredible as it goes ahead and talks about his uh, eyes and, and like he stands like the cedars of Lebanon. And so he must have been some kind of incredible specimen to look at. After all, he probably had a beautiful mother in Bathsheba and a, a good-looking dad in David. Well, that's all the time I have. Read the Song of Solomon. It's a great love story. Story. It's, it's a great book to read as we walk on the way. This is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCRISP.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.